When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Changing Politics, the podcast where a French woman and an Irish woman tell you what you can do to change British politics. I'm Marie LeConte. And I'm Grania Maguire. Thanks for downloading the show. If you enjoy it, it would really help us if you subscribe to it or rate it or reviewed it, as that helps other people find out about the show and tweet about it. Follow us on Twitter at Changing Polypod and like us on Facebook at facebook.com Changing Paul. This week, we're looking at what you can do to fight the rise of the far right with the help of Shabana Mahmoud MP and Joe Mulhall from Hope Not Hate. Now, fair warning, if you think the rise of the far right is a good thing, this probably isn't the podcast for you. But let's start with the week's news, which once again centres on the self-publicist and occasional MP, Boris Johnson. So everybody's favourite hot mess. <laughs> I thought that was me. <laughs> Bit of a disappointment. English hot mess. He gave his swan song, his I did it my way speech in Parliament this week. So he has resigned because he doesn't think Brexit is the Brexit that he had in his head. Do you think it, it's gone the way that he wanted? I don't know. I th- I thought it was actually quite interesting because, you know, Anorax noticed that um he sat at the same spot in the chamber that Geoffrey Howe sat in when he did his big sort of, you know, like speech against Margaret Thatcher. And so I guess everyone like around Parliament was like, OK, ooh, like, you know, what's mm. it going to be? Just end up being quite dull, like genuinely just end up being quite dull. I think there was one comment. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but something along the lines of like the Irish border has become too political. And it's like, <laughs> become too. <laughs> it's just like, every bit. If that sentence was, you know, kind of wrong. He's just not not a very good common speaker. I think, you know, it, that it is a skill to properly address the house, and I don't really think he has it. And also, there's the minor thing that, you know, he did not mention exactly what kind of Brexit he wanted and, you know, how he thinks the government can achieve it in his resignation letter. And surprise, surprise, did not provide any more detail in his leaving speech. So what I found interesting was he he said that he doesn't believe Theresa May believes in Brexit. Like she's Brexit is Tinkerbell or something. But that, that's a genuine thing. I think it's John Elledge in The New Statesman who wrote about the Tinkerbell theory of politics mm. quite a long, like about a year ago now, I'd say, effectively saying that, especially around Brexit, there's been that thing of Brexit is failing because people don't believe in it. And that's not, like I, I don't even know how to critique that properly because it's just so completely bonkers. What I find terrifying about Boris Johnson is he's made me feel sorry for Theresa May. I didn't think that would be possible. 
I just think she's like, what I'm more is it scarier now that Boris Johnson is back on the job market? Because is that going to hit employment figures? <laughs> Any job that George Osborne hasn't swiped, <laughs> Boris Johnson will be looking for it. It's, I think, I mean, you know, A, actually there was that story about how he he should have informed ACOBA, which is the body in charge of regulating effectively, like, the jobs for, like, former MPs and former top advisors. I mean, yeah, didn't tell them he was taking his column of the Telegraph again. From what I can tell, the Telegraph is not over the moon, people who work there, about the fact that Boris Johnson has come back. Partly, <laughs> but, no, partly because, you know, over the years, the Telegraph has made cuts after cuts after cuts. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are on really bad salaries there. And, you know, and their life is a bit shit. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you know, Boris Johnson comes back and is paid, you know, basically the same as like about 10 junior reporters mm-hmm. for one, you know, weekly column. What do you think is with somebody like his ego? And he really has, it feels like he, like watching him, he just felt like yesterday's news. He just like felt so irrelevant. He felt like Al-Qaeda to Jacob Rees-Mogg's ISIS. Do you think, how is he going to cope with that? You've, you know, with your insight knowledge of how his ego works. How is he going to cope with that? you made it sound like I dated him. (laughs) Um, Come on, you know. God. You you know what his mum's like. What's happening? I'm not entirely sure, actually, because, you know, that is a man who craves, you know, both attention and power and is not the sort of person who would go, you know what, actually, that's fine, that's done. You know, I've been a cabinet minister now, kind of done my thing, I can do something else now. So I'm not entirely sure what his next move is going to be. But we've definitely not seen the last of him. I think, you know, that that's the one thing we can say for certain. So speaking of Brexit bad bitches, <laughs> what's Andrew Jenkins up to? She asked a, well, asked a question, I feel like, you know, it's quite mean to the concept of questions. <laughs> but, you know, asked a question at PMQs, basically saying, you know, I find that Brexit now means remain. Because, <sighs> you know, because Andrew Jenkins is proper hard rock solid Brexiteer and who left her incredibly junior front bench role a few weeks ago like pre the others in fairness she was kind of mm. a minor role resignation hipster um, <laughs> and saying she just wanted to fight for Brexit from the back benches but my main thing about Andrea Jenkins is that I can't take her seriously because when she won Ed Balls a seat in one of the interviews she did around you know trying to get the seat of a Morley and Outwood she talked about her dog's star signs. Oh. Yeah. So that's the thing that she did. Is this um, the sort of brain power we've got <laughs> driving Brexit forward? Yep. Canine astrology. My God. <laughs> well, for me personally, whenever Theresa May says Brexit means Brexit, I take a drink. And that started as a fun game, but now it's more of a coping mechanism. <laughs> so there has been what it feels like a never-ending series of Brexit votes in Parliament. A bit like when Coronation Street went five episodes a week. Nobody's paying attention anymore. What? What? What is going on? Anisila, I, I wish I could tell you in detail what's going on, but even I've lost it a bit as well. So basically, yeah, there's been about a million votes over the past few days. There's been bits where the government managed to win a vote by voting effectively against the position it previously had. So the rebels were effectively the ones who were formally supporting the government. And then the people who voted the government in the end were the ones who were originally opposing the government. So, yeah. So, you know, stuff like that. That's been interesting. There's been, you know, the kind of hard Brexiteers pressuring the government on stuff and then adding amendments to bills and the government trying to pretend that that's what they wanted to do all along, which is slightly confusing. And I think, you know, on the one hand, I feel a bit bad because I'm like, as a political journalist, I should know this. But 
equally, I know for a fact that even the MPs are confused. I was talking to a to a Labour MP a few days ago who was like, actually, you know, I went to one of the voting lobbies for one of the votes and about <laughs> and about 15 Tory MPs were there and then they saw about 50 Labour MPs stand up and they went, shit, and apparently like, the 15 Tory MPs legged it because actually they'd <laughs> had the wrong lobby and were about to vote the wrong way. So even the MPs themselves are very confused about what's going on at the moment. I just love that that Westminster is turning into an episode of Frasier. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you want, yeah. I, I also learned that on Tuesday the real enemies of this country were punished. That is, MPs on maternity leave. Finally, I'd been writing letters to my MP about that for years. Joe Swinson, who the, the Lib Dem MP who's currently on maternity leave, was meant to be paired off with another MP, the Tory MP on vote. So, you know, which means that because she can vote, the Tory whips would guarantee that they wouldn't send one of their MPs to vote because then, you know, they'd just cancel each other out. Except, and I mean, see, that story is kind of great. So there were seven votes throughout the day. And so she was paired off with Brandon Lewis, who, and that kind of adds to the fun, is not just a random backbencher. He is the chairman of the Conservative Party and then a big sort of like May loyalist as well. And yeah, and so on two of the votes, Brandon just went to vote. And, you know, the votes were close, like the votes would not have been changed if that pairing had happened, but they were, they were still close. And then the excuse given by the whips and by Brandon Lewis was like, oh, you know, it was just like, we messed up. There was an honest mistake. And it's like, how interesting that you managed to mess up completely randomly by accident out of the seven votes, only on the two votes that were close. (laughs) Just what a coincidence. Mm -hmm. And it's been, I mean, you know, I'd like to point out that this is definitely kind of more like the Westminster rumour mill. This is not information I personally have, but... The consensus that seems to be emerging, it was definitely on the fault of the whips and not Brandon Lewis. And actually, you know, if you've got a chief whip, either on purpose or not, but, you know, kind of breaking off pairing arrangements, I'm not sure how this parliament can keep going. So what they're saying is they're breaking complete parliamentary rules, like precedents, just codes of behaviour. And it's like basic trust honour among thieves and they're just like, is, is this going to be dangerous in the future that people can just break these rules willy-nilly? It is and I think that's not the first time that the Tory whips recently have kind of not, not behaved in the best way because there were obviously a few weeks ago there was this big vote and so normally the convention is that if some MPs are really really sick instead of having to go all the way to the voting lobby to be counted as having voted, they can just turn up in the car, or occasionally in the past, like an ambulance, literally, and then basically the whips will make sure that those MPs are on the parliamentary estate and don't have to leave the car, but, you know, they kind of, like, counted. And, yeah, a few weeks ago, the Tory whips decided that that was not the case anymore for that vote. So you had, you know, Labour MP Nassar, who was really ill and had to go sort of, you know, pushed in a wheelchair with a sick bag on her lap into the voting lobby. Because, yeah, so so I don't know. I feel like, you know, the, the Tory whips are kind of playing quite a dangerous game on the short term. And I'm not sure what's going to happen on the long term because, you know, we, we've seen that before. Actually, you know, I would recommend to everyone seeing This House by James Graham next time it comes back, you know, which was talking about the whip's offices in the chaos of the government in the late 1970s. Labour and the Tories basically were like, you know, pairing is off, you know, every man for himself. <laughs> Parliament nearly collapsed basically as a result because that means that all the MPs always have to be in, you know, no matter how sick, no matter pregnant, whatever. Mm. And yeah, that lack of trust, any vote could be a problem and it just grinds everything down, I think, and it's it's not sustainable. Because it's about just sort of being respectful and be like, right, we're not on the same side, but we're not going to be arseholes to each other. Mm. 
This week, Theresa May has been trying to sound positive about Brexit and a bit like Pierce Brosnan singing, it just kind of sounds wrong coming out of her mouth. <laughs> Do you think she's been successful? No. Really, to be honest, I think she has been trying her best to go around to like all all the different sides and everyone just saying, you know, look, the Chequers deal is a good deal, and you know, and then we can make it work. But I cannot see a Brexit deal that can just get through the house. Is a you know something that a majority of MPs could live with. Like I think that that's the issue right now with parliamentary arithmetics. So I'm not entirely sure she's gonna, what she's going to do. And you know, I think that. A part of this week has been about preparing for no deal because, you know, all the hard Brexiteers were like, this is clearly something we need to do if we want to appear serious. But that's kind of a weird one because Steve Baker was the Minister of State in Dexu charged with preparing for a no deal Brexit. And then he resigned. So if there's no plan, whose fault is it really for a start? I think it's going to be quite exciting a no deal Brexit because I always wondered what it would be like living in North Korea. And I think <laughs> we're going to find out really soon. God, did you see that story apparently about how like cheese is about to become a luxury in like if there's no deal and it's like absolutely not I am moving back if there's one thing that's going to make me move back to France is cheese becoming more of a luxury what would cheeses do that's what I ask myself (laughs) so we've had Ocean's Eleven (laughs) we've had the remake of Ocean's Eleven now we've had we have the four bad boys of Parliament. Oh God! What have they been up to this week? Will there be a female remake? That's all I care about. I really hope not. I mean, I I don't know which one my favourite is really because we've got Ian Paisley who went on these luxurious trips to Sri Lanka for ages, and then you know, and and clearly somebody you know, that was lobbied by Sri Lanka. Well, he claimed it was only fifty thousand on a holiday to Sri Lanka and then it re- you realise it, it was actually 100,000. What did he buy in the juicy free? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Bloody hell, it must have been like supermarket sweep. And it actually sounds like a really stressful holiday. Like literally, if you sent me somewhere for a week and had to be like, you know, sp- you have to spend 100k, I would be so stressed. I'd just be running around but I don't know what to spend this on. <laughs> Do they not have Groupon in Northern Ireland? I am very confused. I thought Ulster says no. <laughs> he was saying <laughs> Saying no to nothing on that break. My God. So what is this punishment going to be? Well, so that means that he has been suspended, so he will not be able to sit in the chamber for 30 sitting days, which is actually a lot. And that was, I think, you know, something that severe had not happened in years. But crucially, it does mean that technically he could be recalled. So if there is a petition in his constituency, which 10% of constituents sign asking for a by-election, then the by-election technically could happen. But that being said, you know, it's a safe DUP seat and he has a really high like personal vote. So I don't think this will happen, but it's, it, it is still a big deal. Have they not just punished him for having too good of a holiday by giving him another holiday? <laughs> that doesn't sound Also, fair. I feel like they've actually, yeah, not punished him, they've just punished themselves because that is a man who normally votes with the Tories. Yeah. So. Punished his family, more like. He's going to be sat around <laughs> watching Cash in the Attic for 30 days. Uh, but what is the other little monkey's been up to? Well, we have John Woodcock, who has left the Labour Party. He's resigned the whip, which, I don't know, I mean, part of me is like, you know, because he's that busy, the Labour Party has been taken over by the hard left. This is not something I can I can live with anymore. And he's always been, that from the very beginning, one of Corbyn's biggest critics anyway. But yeah, I do kind of struggle to see it as a genuine thing because he's under investigation in the Labour Party for, you know, sexual harassment claims. <laughs> and, you know, and that investigation is still very much going on. And it's like, oh, OK, so you've hated Corbyn for what? So like two and a half years, nearly three years now. Like very consistently hated Corbyn. And for some reason, you've decided that the bit where you want to leave... It's the bit, coincidentally, where you're just 
And the investigation from the party for like the way you allegedly sort of like treated women. Being a bit of a dirty perv perv. So yeah, come say that, you know, that really touched me, that kind of, yeah, like grand, like, you know, I cannot do this anymore. But is it John Woodcock? Is it because of his name? That is it's the penis, name. penis, penis, penis. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing the Labour Party doesn't need more of are dirty perv pervs. <laughs> On the left, we've enough. Why can't we saying dirty perp? <laughs> oh god, penis, 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 the dirty perp. It's like the worst children's book ever. <laughs> Speaking of sexual harassment, have you heard of Andrew Griffith, the former Minister for Small Business? Well, I've heard there's nothing small about his business, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Or probably there is something very, very, very small about his business that's just causing the problems. <laughs> Sorry, that was... Yeah, it turns out I really have the sense of humour of like a 12-year-old because that, that is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, no, he... I mean, I think there's there's very much two stories there and I think we kind of need to differentiate between the two. So like, the first one was came from the Sunday Mirror saying that, yeah, he'd sent, and I'm still amazed, so like 2,000 sexts to two women in three weeks. In three weeks. How does he find the time? I'm pretty sure I must have been less busy than him, given that he was literally a Minister of State. I could not have... Even on holiday, even with nothing else to do, I could not send that. And also specifically about sex, like... Surely you just run out of sex to talk about eventually. Mm. And what I loved about the text message is it was like a really grim version of Hangman. (laughs) (laughs) Where it was never a vowel. (laughs) I know. And also, like, what was it? I mean... Basically, my thing is, why are MPs so rubbish at sexting? Yeah. Is my main thing. Because, you know, we had Stephen Crabb a few years ago. I want to kiss you everywhere. The sex that just ruined a bit of my brain, you know, the bit that my brain like produced happy thoughts. Yeah. There was stuff like, daddy's busy running the country. Oh. Was, uh, a horny daddy is a generous daddy. And there was that, I just really want to die now. Oh, my God. God. And they think they can negotiate with Europe. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) But that being said, okay, so like, fun aside, the other story that came out a few days later in The Guardian was actually the fact that Andrew Griffith was under investigation for sexual harassment and bullying claims (sighs) made by several people. And that's when he was appointed as a minister. So like, while he was under investigation, and the Whips knew this, and Andrew Letsom, the leader of the House of Commons, knew this as well, because I think like the letters were addressed to her. And then, yeah, he just got, got given a promotion. What is this, Westminster or Hollywood, for God's sake? It's disgusting. It's just seen as irrelevant, isn't it? And it's just like, yeah, you're you're pervert, you make life really difficult for the women you work with. Oh, well, we need all, all hands on deck. Except the <laughs> we hands- definitely do not need all hands on deck. <laughs> But you're, oh, Get your hands to, off my deck. <laughs> we need all hands on deck so we know where your hands are. <laughs> it's a real insult to all the women in Parliament that these mediocre white men keep getting second chances, keep being promoted. Mm. But it's also the fact that when you look at the Conservative front bench, the diversity there is just, you know, not really there. So, you know, even looking at the recent reshuffle where basically all the people promoted were white men. And so I think it's that as well, looking at, you know, there are so many more than capable female MPs, for example, who are just kind of like living and dying on the backbenches. And instead, yeah, you just get the creeps uh, promoted. Do you think there's more men in the cabinet that are under investigation for sexual (laughs) harassment than women? (laughs) My lawyers have advised me not to uh, to reply to this question. And if there are, you've got to, you've got to, 
respect the the creepy, creepy perverts, you know, they must have a great trade union because they are (laughs) represented. (laughs) They, you know what their problem is? They lean in. (laughs) That is true leaning in. It's usually to look down somebody's shirt. They're leaning (laughs) in. (laughs) It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week, we're going to look at how serious the rise of the far right is, the problems with tackling it, and what we can do to stop it. So as you all know, unless you've been living under a rock for the past years, the far right are back and they're wronger than ever. Although if you have been living under a rock, stay there. Honestly, it's so much nicer than the way the world is at the moment. But how large are they as a problem? We spoke to Joe Mulhall from the campaigning group Hope Not Hate. We should be extremely worried about the far right in Britain and internationally at the moment. We face a number of really, really challenging threats. Since the kind of decline of the British National Party as a big electoral force, the most successful far right electoral threat we've ever faced in the UK, what we've now got is a different type of threat. We've got a decentralised threat with thousands and thousands of activists engaging in small types of far right activism, especially online. We've got the re-emergence of a street movement, the kind of the people around the free Tommy Robinson movement. We've seen 10,000 people on the streets recently which is well over double anything the English Defence League ever managed. So we've got a a very, very large street movement and we've seen a real upswing in violence. We're trying to put a number on the size of the far right here in the UK. Depends how you look at it. I hope not, hey, our estimate is that in terms of traditional far right party membership, so British National Party, National Front and the like, it's absolutely tiny. We're talking well under a thousand people, which is remarkably small. Yet, on the flip side of that, if we say look at traffic to far-right white supremacist and neo-Nazi websites, we're seeing tens of thousands. If we look at the big kind of alt-right websites that we monitor at Hope Not Hate, most of which are based in North America, around 10% of the traffic will usually come from the UK or somewhere around that. For some of them, that's kind of 15, 20,000 unique visitors a month visiting extreme content online. So there's that element. And then in terms of, as we say, the street movement, very clearly there is a large number of people in this UK that support 
the message around someone like Tommy Robinson, and he's been very successful at getting those people onto the streets. So it depends how you look at it. Electorally, it's very, very small. In traditional membership terms, it's very, very small. But in terms of other ways, it's remarkably large and terrifying. One of the biggest champions of the Free Tommy Robinson March was Britain First. You may remember them from the bunch of horrible lies they made up about Syrian refugees, from their frequent invasion of mosques, and most recently from the President of the United States' Twitter feed. But there are new groups starting up all the time. The Football Lads Alliance, which sounds like a fun new banter channel online, but is actually a worrying new far-right movement, recently marched in Birmingham. Here's Shabana Mahmood, Labour MP for Birmingham, Ladywood, to talk us through what happened. They came to Birmingham in the same way that the EDL used to come to Birmingham. They come to have a march. They try to co-opt themselves into a campaign which is called Justice for the 21, which is a campaign spearheaded by families of the 21 victims of the Birmingham pub bombings who still haven't had justice. Lots of people have been active in that campaign and the Football Lads Alliance in Birmingham tried to take that over as their cause and they came basically to Birmingham to make trouble and to try and put out a message that Birmingham is not a city for everybody that it's segregated all of the Fox News style narrative that there had been about Birmingham that it's a no-go area for white people they came to basically propagate that message and spread hate so all of us members of parliament in Birmingham decided we would work together we coordinated letters to the police to the council talking about public safety and maintaining public order reassuring of our communities both through the police and the local authority but also all of our our civic society groups. We have unfortunately had EDL marches through Birmingham in the past. So we have already an apparatus in place when we know something like this is coming. The civic groups within Birmingham get together straight away, stand up to racism, the trade union movement, the faith groups. They are very good at coming together very quickly, uh, sending out a message of reassurance to the Birmingham community and then making sure that on the day we have good contact with the police. We know if trouble is brewing. So we we basically, you know, press the start button on what is already our pre-prepared response. There's always a countermarch presence. That's not normally organised actually through the civic society groups that we work with. Obviously, there is an anti-fascist movement out there already and they sort of also turn up but we make sure that the response from the people who are rooted in Birmingham who are responsible for the city's functioning as a city that we have our own very particular response doesn't normally involve a march Uh, instead we tend to come together in the centre of Birmingham outside the council house and have you know usually a show of solidarity people standing together lots of messages about how you know love thy neighbour interfaith relations you know we just make sure that the pictures we send out to our city show the best of our city. And it's not just on the streets. Currently, we've got Steve Bannon doing a media tour in the UK, turning up on Good Morning Britain and Nigel Farage's LBC show, because the one thing both of those shows were missing was a right-wing loudmouth. Here's Shabana again. In a way, dealing with something like Football Lads Alliance coming along to do their march where you see what you're getting with that kind of way of ordering society because they're thugs and they come along and they behave in a thuggish way. What's more dangerous, I think, is the normalisation of the suited and booted face of respectability end of the fascist spectrum, which is encapsulated by Steve Bannon, by Milo Yanapoulos, by Raheem Kassam. You know, these are fascist operators, 
but they look and they sound like political operatives from any political party. They, you know, they have a message that is couched in very particular terms. And when they're given a platform, that legitimacy that they get and the radicalizing power of that legitimacy is something that's very, very dangerous. These are people who use freedom of speech for themselves in order to gain enough power in society to shut it down for everybody else. They are just the classic fascists that we have seen throughout history. So, Marie, what did you make of Bannon's tour? Did it live up to the hype? <laughs> Think he sold as many T-shirts as he wanted? I found that absolutely incredible. And genuinely, like, you know, I... Obviously, as a journalist myself, I do get occasionally annoyed at people kind of, you know, being so overly critical of the media all the time. That being said, has everyone lost their fucking mind? Like, literally, I feel like... When Steve Bannon was first rumoured to maybe be joining the Trump White House, like, everyone was so horrified, but that was properly like the stuff of nightmare. Fast forward a while, among other things, you know, went on stage and literally like talked about himself as being a white supremacist and, you know, stuff like that, you know, ethno-nationalist, sorry, definitely not the same thing. And, you know, fast forward, comes around, gets on Good Morning Britain, does the Telegraph podcast with, you know, kind of the journalist taking a really, like, matey, smiling picture next to him to promote the podcast, gets on LBC, kind of, yeah, just just gets a lovely media tour, again, as a literal white supremacist. And I worry that the Overton window has shifted so quickly, because I remember, you know, I'd recently moved to the UK when the big Nick Griffin on Question Time debate happened. And I remember at the time, you know, so many people are like, well, you know, obviously not. And the fact that, you know, he went on with such a massive kind of like scandal. Move on a few years and it's now like, yeah, OK, like, you know, this man who probably, and it, not actually, not probably, I would definitely say is more dangerous than Nick Griffin. Just, yeah, didn't just do the one show, kind of went around, you know, had a nice time. And uh, and yeah, and most people just barely batted an eyelid. I, for a second there, I thought he didn't even do the one show. No, I, yeah, no, no, I had, I, I heard myself say that. And it's like, yeah. That's what we're waiting for, Steve Bannon bringing in a pot of jam. <laughs> Why do you think this is, he's become, that he's become so normalised that like, oh yeah, we have white supremacists on talking on Good Morning Britain now? I'm not entirely sure. I feel like, you know, Part of the problem is, you know, is Donald Trump, effectively, because, you know, Steve Bannon is not a random racist. He's a racist who used to work at the White House. There is a school of journalism, which is basically like, you know, if someone is or used to be in a position of power, then they're fair game and, you know, should come on and whatever. They're just like the others, which personally, I think is really dangerous. I think everyone should have lines and Steve Bannon should be over the line for most people, if not all of them. And yeah, I think there's also partly the, you know, the never ending chase for like that no, the numbers, you know, and the exclusive, which will bring in the numbers because the media is now obsessed more than ever, I think, you know, with audiences and with getting as many people as possible to get talking about stuff. And, I, and I'm not sure, I, I don't really get it because I've not actually seen many people properly justify their decision to actually bring, you know, people like Steve Bannon onto their programmes. And do you think when he is on television, do you think he's ever with a journalist who have stood up to him and challenged him enough? Or do you think he's always seems to get sort of quite an easy go of it? But I think it was the thing, wasn't it, when uh, Theo Usherwood at LBC, I think, tried to kind of, you know, challenge Steve Bannon and then Steve Bannon kind of went on a massive rant at him off air. And, you know, Theo sort of like, posted about that on Twitter and obviously I don't want to single him out but it's just you know it is the one example and everyone was kind of like you know well done Theo for like you know pushing back and whatever and it's like how about instead just not inviting him 
like in the first place like why would you like yeah of course you know because of the sort of person he is like he what was it like he called the financial times communist recently which in fairness is a bit funny <laughs> but but you know so that, that is not a man who is anywhere near the political mainstream but it's it's a bit depressing to think that you have to find a great like journalistic mind a Walter Conkright for our era just to find somebody to argue that maybe white nationalism isn't a good thing but I think we're also I think that there's another problem there as well which is that a lot of political journalists won't necessarily be used to doing this kind of really combative interviews you know there's a reason why Paxman was kind of put on that like pedestal because you know he was the kind of like you know punchy person because you know and, and I'm not saying that's a good thing I'm not saying that's a bad thing but especially a lot of you know broadcast or you know kind of like radio stuff will very much you know like don't get me wrong, journalists will definitely put, like, let's say, like, MPs on the spot and stuff. But it's never intended to be a kind of, yeah, like a massive confrontation. And so I think when they do get those people, they don't really know how to deal with them. So now, obviously, the French are... You guys are really good at the far-right stuff. I'm not, I'm not flirting with you, Marie. Genuinely, you really are. Now, are the Free Tommy guys just doing a Café Rouge here? You know, copying the French to do their own crappy British version of it? Well... You know, it, it is a it is a fact that, you know, the rise of the far right in France we have had for a very long time. You know, we had a far right party getting to the second round of the presidential elections, you know, decades ago now, like nearly. And I feel like, you know, France has not entirely solved that problem either, actually, of how, how do you cover the far right? Because, you know, I think that, I think it's the thing, the issue does become different when it is someone who's doing very well in the polls. Like, you know, Marine Le Pen was in the second round this time round as well in the election. So even though I, I would normally, you know, say actually, you know, those people just, you know, ignore them like Steve Bannon, you know, do not invite them on your shows and stuff. If you've got someone who's, because I think Marine Le Pen was on top of the polls for a while, actually, you know, like a few years ago now, that's not someone you can ignore because obviously, you know, your role as the press is to actually cover what's happening and, and, you know, and kind of like inform, keep people informed. And obviously if someone is polling that high, you can't just ignore them. And I think there's the argument as well that if you don't cover them, then that's just going to help them because they can go, well, there you go, you know, they're the elite over there. They want to pretend we don't even exist when we're actually fighting for you, fighting for the little guy, which is obviously not what they're doing. But that's another thing. And, and you know, I, I do think that actually... Britain could do well to look at France and kind of look at what we have done right and we have done wrong because some of our mistakes, I think, should not sort of like be made again in England. So we've been describing the far right as dangerous, but what does that actually mean? This week, a neo-Nazi was actually jailed for plotting to murder Labour MP Rosie Cooper with a machete. So there's obviously a real and present danger from letting these groups go unchecked. But shouldn't we just allow freedom of speech until somebody breaks the law? We asked both Shabana and Joe what they thought. Nationally, I think we almost need a new campaign around the sorts of platforms we give people and a new settlement on the limits of free speech because there have always been limits on free speech and incitement to hatred and violence has always been a limit on free speech. And we need to reinterrogate some of those arguments because liberal democracy is being subverted by these individuals. All of its principles are being used to pursue a cause that will shut liberal democracy down. And so if we don't have some new way of being able to interrogate these arguments, then then we're done for. So I do think we either say, if you're not going to provide them any challenge, don't put them on. But if you are going to provide them with some challenge, then we need... We need that challenge to be there. It's not enough just to have one point of view and then the direct opposite point of view and then say you've had balance. I think there is a 
huge difference between having a right to say what you like and having a right to say it where you like, for example. I'll defend people's willingness to know platform far-right people from university campuses if they want to. And they should, in many senses, I believe. I don't believe that's necessarily a curtailment of the far-right's freedom of speech. They have a right to say it, but you don't have a right to say it wherever you wish. I think that we have to kind of take a bit more of a nuanced understanding of the freedom of speech debate. It's unfortunately become a real rallying cry, and the importance of freedom of speech to our society, which is central, has been kind of co-opted by elements on the far right. We've seen the same in North America, because talking about their more traditional far right politics can often be controversial, but everyone agrees with freedom of speech, or well, the vast majority of people agree with freedom of speech. And so we saw this as that actually when we look at the street movements that we're seeing, or the far right street movements in the UK, Every weekend for about two or three months, we saw them in Hyde Park in Speaker's Corner saying that they are having their freedom of speech curtailed. And they continue to use this rhetoric. And I think we've got to be really careful and not let them win on that. Just this last weekend, we saw 6,000, 5,000, 6,000 far-right activists, and not all of them far-right, of course, but many of them far-right. And we certainly saw the speakers were very far-right from across the European far-right movement, bemoaning their curtailment of freedom of speech while they were stood on Whitehall on a stage outside the Houses of Parliament bemoaning that they don't have a right to say what they want. So we cannot let them get away with that nonsense, I think. So we have to be super careful in debating the far right because for them, they pre- pretty much win just by being given the publicity of an equal footing with legitimate politicians. So what can be done to stop them? If you see the rise of fascism and the rise of the far right, you should get involved in the civic society groups in your community that will provide the bulwark to fighting the far right, not just marching in the streets when you know they're coming to town, but the people who are bridge builders between natives and newcomers, the civic society institutions that help bring people who are different into a shared space where they can have something that unites them, sort of a very practical way of reminding everybody we have more in common than we have through our differences. So I think getting active at your own community level is really important. People need to get involved. We're always desperate for people to kind of come and get involved with Hope Not Hate. We have our research side, which we exist, and obviously we need funding on that. So if anyone's got a spare fiver, we'd always love to have that. We have lots of people who support us by signing up to the mailing list and sharing our content. That's amazing. That's great. You know, just even just by retweeting content that we've put out there, which is about counter-narrative work or challenging things online, if people can't get out, it's as simple as that. It's about just getting involved in that way. But also we've got a kind of, uh, we're an activist organisation at our core, you know. We have groups all over the country. So if people want to help and want to get involved, go on our website, get drop us a line. There's local groups all over the country. And we're always desperate for people to get involved and help campaign. So you can go out and you can go door knocking, you can go leafleting with us on weekends. Or do it, you know, once every six months. It really is as much or as little as you want. At a very base level, kind of just follow Hope Not Hate on social media and, and push content to your friends. Have a conversation over uh, at a dinner party or with, at the pub. You know, go and have a talk about it and engage with people that way. It's as simple as that. It doesn't need to be kind of like getting involved and becoming this huge act, super activist, you know. So that's what you can do this week. Visit hopenothate.org.uk, chuck them some money, help out, or just retweet their stuff. And also Google your town's name and civic society and see how you can get involved. We'll see you all next week. Bye. <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.